Hello, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today my message is the heart of Christianity. I hope you enjoy it. The message that I'm going to deliver this morning is, I believe, probably one of the most important messages that I could deliver to anyone that I would describe as a church-going person or a person with a church background. Um, this is a message as a result of two experiences that I've had really over the last couple of years. Um, the first comes from a number of conversations that I've had with men uh, who I've interacted with who are struggling with their lives, who may be struggling with their faith. Um, and I would describe most of them as church-going men who intellectually believe in Christianity, but they're men who would, would clearly acknowledge that their faith has little impact on their day-to-day -day lives. And I think they also would acknowledge that it's not a high priority in their lives. And of course, they're not really that concerned about it. But when it gets right down to it, that's where they are. And so from these conversations, I've, 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 I've recognized something. The second part of this is, the, is an experience I've had just in, in closely reading and carefully studying the New Testament and what it says about having a real, legitimate faith in Christ. So to you listening this morning, I would ask you to do this. I would ask you to, to first to listen carefully to what I say, to think clearly and to be honest with yourself and ask yourself this question, how does this message apply to me spiritually? And the title of this is what I call The Heart of Christianity. And what I'd like to do in, in beginning this time together is take maybe two or three minutes to summarize the Christian message, to summarize the message of the New Testament in its simplest form. The Bible teaches us that a holy and righteous God brought us into existence and gave us His holy law to live under. The problem is that we as human beings consistently break His holy law because we're naturally self-centered. We have this attitude in our hearts that says, I want to go my way in this life. You know, this really is the definition of sin. Sin is an attitude of the heart that says, I want to do what's right in my own eyes. I'm going to live the way I want to live. And that's really, I guess, kind of the, the perspective of, of being autonomous, to live under my own moral law, to live however I want to live. And this is why the Bible says in Romans 3 that there is none righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, fall short of God's moral law. And, he, and the Bible is very clear, it says, because of our transgressions, because of our lawlessness, there are consequences for that. And those consequences are separation from God. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities, your sinfulness, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages, or the penalty of our sinfulness, is spiritual death, eternal separation. But then there's good news. You know, that's what the word gospel means, good news. And that good news is that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die on a cross, to take our sins on himself. He died an atoning death on the cross so that we can be cleansed of our unrighteousness, so that we can find forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, talking about God, made Jesus 
who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become righteous. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a separation, there's this huge chasm between us and God that separates us from God. Jesus comes in and mediates. He brings us together so that we can have a relationship with God. So there's no longer that separation. And one of my favorites is, is what uh, uh, Peter says. He says, Our lives, our souls were redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with precious blood, the blood of Christ. This is the gospel, which leads to, I think, the huge issue that I want to address this morning, and that is this. How does a person integrate the gospel into their lives? In other words, how do we come to know Christ? How is a man or a woman forgiven and cleansed of their sin? Or really simply put, how does one become a Christian and have an eternal relationship with God? You know, when, I, when I, I ask this question, all kind of responses come forth. Well, I was born a Christian. Um, I've been a Christian all of my life. Um, or I'm a Baptist. Or I'm a Presbyterian. Or I'm a Catholic. Or what I hear from many people is, well, you know, I've joined the church. But basically what I find is, when you ask a question of how do you become a Christian or when did you become a Christian, you get a blank stare. It's like, what are you talking about? Now let me share with you my assessment of what I see. And this again just comes from um, my experience in talking to men. And my assessment is this, that we Americans are a very busy people. We live at a frenetic pace. We work hard, we play hard, and when we're not working or playing, we're either sitting in front of the television or we're sitting in front of the computer. And what's so funny is we seem to always be complaining that we don't have enough time. Consequently, what happens, or what I, you know, again, this is my opinion, our spiritual well-being is not a priority. And it's not a priority because, then, and I would like to hopefully say this very clearly, is because I sense a pervasive presumptuousness in people's lives. And let me share with you what I mean by that. This is most people's mindset. I live in a predominantly Christian nation. I believe in God, and I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I believe He died on the cross for me. I go to church when there's not a conflict, maybe even I go to Bible study. And I'm pretty much a law-abiding citizen. You know, in other words, I'm a pretty decent guy. And so, therefore, I must be a Christian. I mean, what else could I be? I'm not an atheist. I'm not a Hindu. I'm not Muslim. I'm not Jewish. I must be a Christian. And this perspective that people bring to the table, this perspective concerns me deeply. And what else is kind of uh, amazing, or not amazing, but of interest, it was of grave concern to Jesus. This presumptuousness that people have about their faith greatly concerned him. In Matthew chapter 7, he talks about this. And I don't know how much you know about the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the most famous sermon in the Bible. 
And it goes from Matthew 5, Matthew 6, all the way through Matthew 7. And it speaks on a multi multitude of issues that relate to the people of God. This sermon does. And right at the end of the sermon, this is what Jesus says. Just kind of out of the blue, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And your name cast out demons and in your name perform many wonderful works? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then in the book of Luke, chapter 13, beginning in verse 22, Jesus, this was not the Sermon on the Mount, it's a completely different occasion. It says it was a time he was passing from one city to another, proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And in verse 23 of Luke 13, it says, And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door for many. He uses that word in both situations. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being cast out. You know, it's important to note in both of those passages, in both of those um, um, parts of Scripture, he is referring to religious people. He's not referring to atheists. In both cases, they call him Lord. They obviously believe in God. Also, he says there will be many, in both readings it says many, not few, who presume that they will go to heaven for when they find out they're not, they argue with him. I mean, think about that. They argue with him. If, you know, if, if you're a godless person and then one day you die and you stand before God, you, know, you realize, I don't have any, any room to, uh, to I have nothing to argue with him about. These people argue. And you see their presumptuousness. They're presumptuous. They presume they're Christians because they believe in him and they, did, they not only did good works, but good religious works which they relied on. They, they stood on that. They said, they, that's what they presented before God. But God, look, we did all these things and we did it in your name. And finally, I think the thing we should recognize is that the people he is referring to will be stunned. Why? Because anybody would be stunned if they expect to go to heaven. But as Jesus says in Luke 13, 24, he says, many seek to enter, many expect to enter the kingdom, but will not, his words are, but will not be permitted. Now let me say this. These are hard words. And some of you listening may not like them at all. But you know the thing that strikes me about the words of Jesus is they always come out of a heart of love. He loves us. Think about going to a physician. Look at, look at it in that light. You know there's something terribly wrong with your life physically. And you go see a doctor. Do you want the doctor to say, ah, don't worry about it, you'll be all right? Do you want the doctor to say, take two aspirin, come back in a couple of weeks? 
That's not what you're looking for. You want the doctor to diagnose your problem. You want him to speak straight to you. You want him to tell you what's wrong with you so you can get well. And this is what Jesus does. He doesn't tell us what we want to hear. He always tells us what we need to hear. And I believe in these verses, which seem to be very harsh or hard almost to receive, I believe he is trying to shake us all up, every single one of us, and get our attention so that we all ask this question, am I right with God? If I died tonight, would I be allowed to enter his kingdom? Or would I be one of the many who hears the words, depart from me, I never knew you? Let me ask you this question. Is there any more serious issue in all of life when it gets right down to it? Our eternal well-being, our eternal destiny. Listen to what Paul said to the Christians in Corinth. This comes in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Why would Paul say to a group of Christians, why would he say this? Why would he challenge them about the legitimacy of their faith? I think there's one reason. He had the same exact concern that Jesus had. So what does the Bible teach us about how one becomes a Christian? What is a legitimate believer or follower of Christ? And you know, it really doesn't matter what you and I think. What matters is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? I want to take a close look at that. And I want to start by reading three short verses to you. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Luke 18, 17 says, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a child will not enter it at all. And then in Colossians 2.6, Paul says, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. The Bible is clear. At a point in your life, you must receive Him. Whether it's when you're a child, when you're a teenager, when you're an adult, when you're an old person. At some point, you must do that. Of course, the next natural question I get, or that would, would seem to come up is, well, where does belief come in? Doesn't the Bible say you've got to believe? Isn't that, isn't that what it's all about? You believe in Jesus? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have life everlasting. John 6.47 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So it's important to ask the question then, okay, what does it mean to believe? We've talked about receiving Christ. What does it mean to believe? Well, every time you see the word believe in the New Testament, I looked up every single one of them, the word believe comes from the Greek word pistio. It's P-I-S-T-E-U-O. And when you look up that word in the Greek, it means to believe, to entrust, or as the Amplified Bible says, to trust in, cling to, rely on. In other words, it means so much more than to believe something in my head. The best example that I use very often is, again, going back to, to, to use the illustration of a sick man going to a doctor. Let's assume you're, you know something's wrong, you go to the, your physician, 
He diagnoses you and says, you have a very rare form of cancer. And if it goes untreated, you'll die within six months. The good news is, is we can do surgery. And because of all the new drugs, you know, we can pretty much heal you and you'll be well. Now, it's important, first of all, that you believe it in your head. I'm in no way saying that that's not, if you don't believe it in your head, you'll never go back to the doctor. You'll think he's a quack and you'll go somewhere else. But if all you do is believe it in your head and you say, oh, this is great, I believe that, but you never go back to the doctor, you'll also eventually die. True belief is believing in my head and then going to the doctor and saying, I give my life to your care, I entrust my life to you. This is what pistio means. This is what it means to believe. Now you may say at this point, well, I'm confused. You say receive Christ and then also give myself to him. Receive and believe or believe in the biblical context. Which is it? Well, it's both. Let me explain this. This is really quite simple, I promise you. When we're talking about becoming a Christian, what are we talking about? We're talking about entering into a holy relationship with the living God, with Jesus Christ. Entering into a relationship with Him. And this is most important to comprehend. There is another holy relationship we enter into in this life. Marriage. Holy matrimony. That's why it's called, it's called holy matrimony because it was instituted by God. And listen to this. This is fascinating. In John 3.29... In Matthew 9.15, in Mark 2.19, in Luke 5.34, and a host of other verses, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. Isn't that interesting? Just out of the blue, the Pharisees will ask a question. He says he refers to himself as the bridegroom. And he refers to his people, Christians, as the bride. Interesting. You know, he doesn't say... I am the husband, you're the wife. Why? He uses the language of bridegroom and bride. Why does he do that? Because the bridegroom and bride, when you hear those terms, you realize he's talking about a wedding where two people come together to be united in a holy event. You know, marriage is one of the most significant events in life because we're entering into a relationship, we're entering in to a whole new life. Jesus uses the term bride and bridegroom to demonstrate how we enter into a relationship with him, a life-changing relationship. Now let me ask you this question. I think we have a large group of people here that are married, some are not. What happens when you get married? Think about it. Well, the first thing you should do after you meet, um, since this is a group of men, the young lady, that you might be interested in marrying and you begin to get to know and date her, at some point, you begin to count the cost of getting married. That's why, you know, when you get married, the minister always says, you know, it is not to be entered into lightly because there's a huge cost when you go from being single to being married. You know, I was single for 41 years. So for me, as I was thinking about getting married to my, my wife, I had to realize I had to give, I'm going to give up living by myself. And when you, when you live by yourself, you do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do. And you can imagine, for me, I was setting my ways. 
And so I realized for me to get married, I was going to have a lot of change come into my life. Also, when you get married, as you count the cost, you realize that there will never be any other women in my life ever again on this basis. You give up dating. You are committing yourself to this one person, and you, as you know, for the rest of your life. And if you know and contemplate having children, you're talking about even more change, more of a cost. And then think about it. In the biblical terms of marriage, they don't, you know, prenuptial agreements were not a part of it. You know, that, that's not part of God's plan for marriage. So when you enter into, a, 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 when you get married, think about this. Everything you have becomes hers. Everything you own becomes hers, and everything she owns becomes yours. Huge commitment, which God intended for it to be. And this is what a man or a woman must do if they want to become a Christian. I believe you have to count the cost. And this is a problem today because modern man, and I think the modern church, believe, what Diedrich, believe in what Diedrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, where there's no cost on my part required, no commitment required, where Christ really has no impact on my life and no real authority over my life. But the Bible says very clearly in Mark chapter 8, following Christ is costly. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then he goes on to say, if you want to save your life, he says, you've got to lose your life. You have to give it up. You have to give it to me. So think about, guys, what happens in a wedding ceremony. You commit yourself to each other. Think about it. Think about the vows. Next time you go to a wedding, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, as long as you both shall live. Do you see what goes on in a wedding? You give yourself to your spouse, and they receive you. And in turn, they give themselves to you in commitment, in the wedding ceremony, and you receive them. So there is a giving of yourself, and there is a receiving. And this is what must happen if we are to become a Christian. And this is what's important to know. Jesus has already given himself to us. Listen to what Ephesians 5.2 says. It says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. In Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he says, We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. And then 1 Timothy 2, 6, it's that Paul talks about Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for many. In all of those verses it says, He gave Himself. He gave Himself to us. Jesus clear, clearly also tells us in John 15, There is no greater way for me to demonstrate my love and commitment to you than to lay down my life for you, which He did at the cross. So picture this, folks. Jesus is the bridegroom, and He is saying to every single one of us, I have given myself to you, I have laid down my life for you. Will you receive me 
and what I have done for you on the cross. And will you believe in me and entrust your life to my care and to my will? You know, this is the ultimate question. Will I receive him and will I entrust my life to him? You know, in marriage, if you think about it, <clears throat> you enter the church and you enter in single, assuming you get married in a church. You go into the church and you're single and you leave married. And it happens at the very moment the minister says, I now pronounce you, those famous words, I now pronounce you man and wife. You know, in the same way, as we receive Christ and surrender our lives to him, we become a Christian. In a moment, we become a Christian. And at that moment, we are cleansed of our sins, we are given salvation, and we are in a position to begin to know him personally in a relationship, a relationship that extends on into eternity. But what this is important to note, very crucial to note, in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, it says, when we become a Christian, he gives us his spirit as a pledge. Those are the words from 2 Corinthians 5, 5. In other words, he puts his spirit within us. Let me read to you a couple of verses that, that, uh, that talk about this. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, the fourth chapter, starting in the fourth verse, he says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. What he also says in John 1, 12 that we read, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. <clears throat> because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. In other words, we, we become a Christian. He sends his spirit in our hearts, and we are adopted into his family as his children. Then Jesus, in uh, John chapter 7, says this, starting in verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So when a person becomes a Christian, God's Spirit comes into his life. As Paul says in Colossians 1, 22, in 1, is he says, it's Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. Now, let me just say this real quick. When you come to Christ and God puts his spirit in you, become a Christian and he puts his spirit in you, there are no fireworks. There is no emotion, huge emotional charge that you get. You know, for me personally, it was just a knowledge that God was in my life. And I, could, I knew that he was going to begin to work in my life. What God does when a person comes to Christ, receives him, entrusts his life to Christ, what God actually does is best described in Ezekiel chapter 36, where he says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will put my spirit, and he, he's talking about Holy Spirit because it's capitalized, and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes, 
and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You know, this, what we're talking about, guys, this is what the Bible calls regeneration, the new birth. And it's very important to bring this back to where we started. Now, this is what it means to become a Christian. This is what happens. But listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He does not belong to Christ. And then go back to the verse I read to you from 2 Corinthians where Paul is addressing the Christians in Corinth. Let's go back. I want to read it again to you because it, it, it pulls us all together. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? I think the Bible is quite clear. If you have never received Christ, if the Spirit of God is not in you and is not working in your life, if that is the case, we are not in the faith, we do not belong to Christ. As Paul says, we fail the test. You know, I, for 16 years, I was a member of a large Presbyterian church here in Birmingham. And from time to time, I would hear the minister, who is now retired, he would kind of tell, he would share his story, his testimony, if you want to call it that. And the thing that always <clears throat> struck me and amazed me, he says, I was halfway through seminary and I realized I had never received Christ and I was spiritually lost. You know, imagine that. Here he's a seminary student, halfway through seminary and realized, you know, I'm lost. And just recently I heard <clears throat> an Anglican bishop speak and he said, I was ordained. I was an ordained priest. And I, found, I realized one day as someone challenged me, he said, I realized that I was spiritually lost. I had never received Christ. I did not have the Spirit of God in me. I had never experienced the new birth. And I, and I heard this on a tape. I didn't hear him uh, live, but I heard him, him share that. And it struck me. You know, if a guy halfway through seminary or an ordained priest admit that they were not Christians, think of all the church-going people in our land, who Jesus says are many, who may not have the Spirit of Christ in them and are spiritually lost. And maybe that is true of some of you who are listening to this today. I just went through this entire material this, that I've just shared with a guy that I've been meeting with. He grew up in the church, and since he's been an adult, he's, he, periodically he goes to church. His wife goes to church more regularly than he does, he says. But he made this comment after hearing what I shared, and he said, you know, I am 44 years old, and I have never heard this. Or he's, he, he said, I may have heard it, but I never understood it. Now think about that. That is why Paul's words are so important. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. Be honest with yourselves. As I close, I would say to all of you listening, in a wedding ceremony, you say your vows publicly. It's a vow that you make to the person you're giving yourself to. With Christ, it's very similar. It involves a simple prayer wherever you are. 
So if your heart's desire is to be certain that you are right with God, that you will be included in His kingdom, and if it's your desire to truly to know Him personally, all it requires is a commitment from the heart, a prayer before God where you tell Him, Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn from my sinfulness and entrust my life into your hands. I receive you into my life as Savior to be cleansed from my sins, and I receive you as Lord of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. You know, when that is the prayer of your heart, and you mean it, on the authority of God's Word, not on my authority because I don't have any authority, but on the authority of God's Word, Jesus Christ will live in your life, and you are promised eternal life. So if you listening this morning have never surrendered your life to Him and received Him into your life, remember this, He's like a bridegroom who loves you and is committed to you and desires to enter a most glorious relationship with you. But He is waiting for you to respond to His invitation. Thanks for being here this morning. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, Founding Director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.